So, uh, last week we, so the, the, the point of this Bible study is to go through these top texts, um, the, the most clear texts uh, on each uh, topic. And again, there's many, many different texts you can turn to and many that profess the same truth. Uh, but what I'm trying to do is give you like a bite-sized amount of text to hear and to memorize uh, and so that you can know and turn to clearly and say, yes, that's where this teaching is found in the scriptures. Because I realize that the Bible is big and there's a lot to read. And then we say, well, uh, because there's so much, um, you know, it's overwhelming. I'm not, never going to get into it. But I think if we can break it down into these little sections this way, you guys can learn it better in this way. Especially when people ask you, uh, what do you believe? Um, where does it say that in the Bible? Uh, because that is what it means to be a Lutheran, is to not insert our own opinions and ideas into the Scriptures, but to let the Scriptures dictate our ideas and opinions. And so we're subject to the Bible and not the other way around. Uh, the Bible is not subject to us. What God says is authoritative, that, that, that uh, commands us and says what to do. Now, last week we talked about original sin, that this is a real thing that the Bible talks about in many, many places. I gave you three. That sin is a thing that comes from, that's in us, uh, that pulls us away from God. Um, not only pulls us away, but starts us away from God. Uh, that it comes from Adam. Uh, that it's passed down uh, through, through the gene pool. It's, it's uh, like a disease that the father and mother, the father who is sinful and the mother who is sinful passes this on to their child who has no hope but to be sinful. And then David, we looked at Psalm 51 and we saw that David himself says when he became sinful. And he doesn't say it was when I did this wrong thing one point or at this moment. He says, uh, surely uh, in sin did my mother conceive me. I was brought forth in iniquity. So that David's problem is one of not just what he did, but his problem is who he is. It's a problem of being. It's an ontological problem. It's, it's who he is. He has a problem, and he's, he's sinful. And this is true not only for David, but it's true for all people. So that we all face the same thing. You can work this in the reverse. Uh, in Romans, I think, 6, it says, For the wages of sin is death. Okay. So, what, what does death do? It, is, it gives sin. The payment for this is sin. Or, sorry, the payment for sin is death. So, if you die, then you're sinful. Um, and you can see that in, you in, in and of yourself right now, you are sinful. You have sin. Uh, that is that uh, the fact that you have to wear gr glasses means you're what? Your eyes are dying. They're not maintained. So they're, they're, they're deteriorating, which means your body is dying. That's a result of sin. Now, again, I don't want to leave you here in despair and think that, okay, well, uh, everyone who's, you know, we're all dying and there's no hope. No, there is hope. And the hope is that Christ redeems us. He, he dies for us. He lives the perfect life. He has a perfect conception, a perfect birth, a perfect life, a perfect death. And he, and he does this and he lives it in our place. So I, I do want to talk about that. I want to talk about what Christ has done and how he's redeemed us from this. 
But before you can understand what the cure is, you have to understand what the disease is. Um, you'll have no thanks or joy over Christ's death on the cross if you don't understand why you need his death on the cross. So first you have to see, yes, I need his death on the cross. I do have the disease. And then you see when the person comes and says, here's the cure, then you will rejoice with all your heart to say, that's, that's what I've been looking for. That's what I need and what no one else could give me is what Christ gives me. So, so this is the point. Um, but so you don't despair. Uh, I'll give you the preview. Christ has indeed redeemed us from all these sins and redeemed us from the sins uh, and the problem of who we are even. He's redeemed us as people. So, okay, so before getting into that, I want to talk about the effects of sin. So we talked about when sin comes about, uh, when it affects us, and then now the eff- effects of sin. What is the result or the consequence of sin? And this is what we would call the depravity of man. Um, so a number of people think of sin as what? Yeah, so something, yeah, something you do, actions. And then that those actions are really kind of mistakes, right? So that the quality or the degree of those bad actions is, ah, I shouldn't have done it. So that uh, you would say, um, yeah, I don't pray as often as I should. Okay, that's kind of a little mistake. And then you ask people, do you think you're going to go to heaven? And then they say, well, I hope so. Why? Because I haven't murdered anybody. So in our minds, naturally, we have this scale. We have a scale, and then we say, well, at the bottom is uh, Hitler, and then at the top is Mother Teresa. And I'm somewhere in between, right? I'm probably here. No, I'm probably here. Uh, And then uh, Jordan is probably (laughs) down here. No. Um, (laughs) So, so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, don't sit there. That's the chair. Um, so, so we have this scale, and then we, we just automatically put ourselves here. And then we, uh, when it comes to salvation or getting into heaven, we think it's like a competition. Then we say, well, if I'm up here, but there's all these other people out there, and they're worse than I am. So if they're not going to make it... I, or if they're going to make it, then I have a better chance of making it. If they're not going to make it, then um, I have a better chance because I'm not in the same group as they are. So, but we think of it this way. And really, we should think about it this way, right? So that the line is like this. So it's not that there's a ladder getting to heaven. It's that it all tumbled and all men are equal before the sight of God. And there's a massive chasm between every human being who's fallen short of the glory of God and God. And that's the problem. You say, how do we go from here, which is very, very low, to light years above, to the holiness and righteousness of God? How, if that is the standard to get, the standard to get into heaven is not to be better than your neighbor. The standard to get into heaven is perfection. And you say, well, okay, but th- then who's going to go to heaven? Then nobody goes to heaven. So we're in this conundrum. The reason we're in this conundrum is because you are then thinking of salvation by works. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about that later too. But what I want to say here is this, is that the, what the scriptures talk about man, when they talk about the depravity of man, is that every human being is equally guilty before God. So that there's um, a, a root of the problem and then there are fruits. Uh, so think of it like a tree. 
the, the disease is there in the roots. It's in the trunk of the tree. Regardless of how many fruits that tree has, it has the problem, right? So, which means, um, so some people have more symptoms of sin and depravity than others, right? Uh, but you still have the, the problem. I've, I've used this example before. And I, I, okay, so imagine there is a, uh, a, a terrible disease going around, a real, actual, terrible disease that is a 100% mortality rate and it's infecting the world. And then you go to the doctor and then uh, you say, ah, you know what, My, I, have a, I have a sore throat, um, but this disease causes people to, I don't know, vomit blood and convulse and die and their heads explode or, you know, something crazy. Uh, and then these are just these gr- massive, gruesome details things. Okay, but you go to the doctor and you just have a sore throat. And then you tell the doctor, um, okay, well, I, I, I might as well, let me just get the test and let me just see if I have it or not. And then the doctor says, uh, yep, test came back, you have the disease. And then you say, that's ridiculous, that's absurd, I only have a sore throat, but these people, that person's puking blood. So, um, so I don't need the cure, don't give me the cure, because I'm way better off than this person next to me, there's people next to me here. Well, that's foolish, why? Because you have the disease, even though the symptoms aren't as great or severe as the next person. This is the same thing that's happening with the Pharisees in the New Testament. What they would say is they would say, look, I'm not an extortioner. I'm not uh, uh, a murderer. I don't steal. I don't do anything. Uh, but I do, I, I'm not perfect. Okay, you may not have these great symptoms, but you realize you still have the disease, which means you still need the cure. So even though, so God is not judging us here um, based on the symptoms that we show of sin, but on sin. So again, think of, think of this. If the standard is perfection, how many sins is necessary to be imperfect? One. That means failing to pray once is what? Imperfect. Even that, if that's the worst thing you did your whole life, is you, you, you ate a meal and forgot to thank God for it, then you're imperfect. And the standard is perfection, right? Um, th- that, that's the problem. So, th- again, uh, think of it like, uh, like coffee. So here's a, uh, a cup of coffee and say this morning, okay, you all got coffee. But what I did this morning is I dropped one drop of uh, urine <laughs> or, <laughs> or <laughs> one drop of poison or something in this. Would you still drink it? No. Why? Because it then infects the whole thing. In the same way, this is what's happening with the heart. Um, you say, okay, here's my heart. I want to give my heart to God. But there's one drop of filth or poison, one drop of sin in it. Is it good? No. It's, it's unacceptable. You wouldn't accept this if it had one drop of dirt in it. And you expect God then to accept your heart when it's filled with sin? What, what standard is that? That's a double standard. So the, the point I'm getting that at is, is this. Again, I'm not trying to lead you to despair. I'm telling you only the gravity of sin. That this is a deep and serious problem. And instead of judging yourself based on comparison and what you think uh, of yourself, rather you judge yourself and your condition based on what the Bible says. Right? 
A lot of times, like p- people will have cancer and they don't know they have cancer. Why? Because they don't feel the cancer. But the x-ray, or not the x-ray, the MRI comes back and the tests come back and then they say, what? You have it. You see it. The doctor can see something that you yourself can't see, something you can't even feel. And in the same way, God is telling us you have a disease. In fact, this disease of sin is so bad that you don't feel as sinful as you are. You're numb to your own sin, which means you're worse off. If you, if you feel your sin, that's bad. But if you don't feel your sin, then it's really bad. Then your guilt is through the roof, right? So your, your heart has become calloused. Um, so what I'm telling you to do is look not at yourself, but look at what the doctor says about your condition. Look at what the scriptures say about your condition. So that's what we're going to start with is the depravity of man, talking about what, how grave this issue is. I'm not talking about how you feel, what you experience. Just what does God say the condition you have is? Romans 8, 7 is the third best text here. Romans 8, 7 says this, For the mind that is set on the flesh, that is the the fleshly or natural mind of man, is hostile to God. For it, that is the, this fleshly mind, this natural mind, does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Okay, so th- this tells you th- how bad of a situation we're in. That your mind on its own, that your, your, your natural abilities, uh, the predisposition of man is not that you're a neutral blank slate before God. Rather, you're what? Against God. Right? How does Jesus say this? He, he doesn't say either you're for me um, or you're, apoth- I don't know, you're, you're, you're in a neutral zone or you're against me. No, he says you're either for me or you're against me. So that there's no middle ground. That's it. That's, that's, the, that's the switch. You can only be one of two things, for God or against him. Um, so this is what's happening. We, there is no blank slate. There's no neutral state of man. So when he's born, we see that he's born with sin, infected with this disease, and then this disease is so bad that we are actually God's enemies, naturally. That sounds like we need help, right? Um, it, it, it sounds like we, we need God to do something for us, <laughs> that we're in such a bad condition that naturally you are against God. Um, so that's the first thing. The mind of the flesh is set against God is hostile to God and it won't submit to God's law. So that if God says something, what does the flesh do? No. No, it, it's, it's like trying to pull a horse that's resisting, that's, that's pulling you back and, and refusing to cooperate. Uh, in the same way, that's what our hearts are like. That God says, look, repent and believe in me and you'll have forgiveness and, 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 and salvation. And the heart says, no. Nope, I don't want that. So, what I'm getting at is this idea that we have to kind of give our hearts to God or that we make a decision to, for God is really what? Against what the scriptures say. That our hearts are never in the place to make that decision or do that on our own. Uh, that means something serious has to happen. There has to be a huge change. And that's what we'll talk about next, what that change is. Okay, um, again, I'm just telling you the seriousness of this. You're hostile to God. 
The second best text here is 1 Corinthians 2.14. And it continues with this theme. It says the natural person, this person without the spirit, without God, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God because they are folly to him. They're foolishness. That's stupid. They're stupid to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So he's incapable of understanding them. So it's not like you, if, if you just reason enough or if you plead enough or something, then you can convert somebody. No, he says, if you don't have the spirit of God, then you consider everything that God says as foolishness, that you find it stupid. So you say, well, God forgives your sins. Ah, that's dumb. I don't, I, thanks, Jesus, for doing all that on the cross, but I didn't need it. I'm not that bad. Other people need it, not me. Uh, or here's, this is my, my body and blood for the forgiveness of your sins. I don't need that. I, I'll just go on my way. Uh, here's baptism that washes away everything you've, you've ever done. I don't need it. I, I, don't, I don't feel that. So it's resistant against God. And then it, on top of that, finds the things that God says to be foolish and dumb. Um, Would that yeah. you apply to a Christian? If you're a Christian, you could still have that vision of it being folly? Yeah, that's a good question. So, so this is talking about those who are not Christians, the, the, the natural man. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about this too, the, the dual nature. In Latin, there's a phrase called simul justus et peccator, meaning you're simultaneously just and sinner. So that there, there's this fight going on in you. And then we'll talk about that in Romans 7, uh, Romans 6 as well, uh, Hebrews 10 and things like this. Uh, but the point there is that uh, there is a fight and a struggle to say, I hear what God says, and when you find something foolish, or if you find something that God says to be foolish, then that is your sinful nature coming up. And then what do you have to do? You have to drown the sinful nature and kill him, put him to death and say, look, uh, God is God and not you, right? I'm not. Uh, so what God says goes. Now, even if it sounds foolish and ridiculous and beyond reason to me, God said it. Has, does he lie? Does God lie? If he lies, then he's not perfect. Then he's not God. God cannot lie. So what he said then, therefore, is true. And if anybody's going to be wrong, like if you read the Bible and, and it contradicts something, that you believe or feel or experience, um, then you're wrong and not God. That's it. <laughs> there you go. Thank you, Mike. That's, that's it. That, you, you say, look, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I know I was born 35 years ago. What in the world do I know? God is from everlasting to everlasting. He is God. His word endures forever. I know nothing. Come on. So I'm, I'm going to sit here and correct God. I'm going to sit here and say, oh, God, you don't know, you don't know my problems. You don't. No. He knows all things. He is true. He cannot lie or deceive us. I mean, he can't even say something that would lead us in the wrong way. Um, so, so anyway, it's, it's a really, this is where repentance comes in. And then when we find this in us, uh, then that's where repentance uh, takes over. Uh, and that's the new man. So you're going to have a fight of the new Tony versus the old Tony. The old Tony finds the things that God says stupid. And the new one that God 
raised in baptism says, nope, God is God, and he's going to fight against them. So this is a fight that's going to happen every day, un- your whole life unto the death. Um, and, uh, and then at that moment, you will defeat the old Tony once and for all, and he'll be gone, right? And the new one will live forever, right? So, so that this uh, flesh that still clings to us will one day stop breathing, and I thank God for it, because this flesh has fallen. Um, but God has promised uh, salvation. He has promised to redeem me from this and to raise this flesh imperishable, right? We'll, we'll talk about that later too, but good, good question here. Uh, that's the natural man. So the, the normal, natural you is against God. Um, now look at the, the top text. Oh, sorry, I didn't write this down, did I? Corinthians, what, 2, 14? Uh, okay, the top text is Ephesians 2. Uh, to, oh, sorry. I'm, sorry, I messed that up. 2, uh, 1 through, what did I put? 3. Let's just read this. I'll read it for you. Now, this is the clearest text that talks about our condition. And our natural condition. It says this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Um, so, how, how is Scripture describing you? Not as wounded, not as free, not as able to make a decision, not as uh, alive and well, but you were dead. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so look, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's, it's kind of like the walking dead, right? You are a zombie, right? Alive in the body, but dead in the, uh, dead in the spirit. Your mind works in this realm. Your mind can add things and figure things out, but it doesn't work in this realm. It doesn't work with the things of God. In fact, the mind is hostile to God. It is, uh, it is uh, uh, against, it finds the things of God foolish. So we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, he says, when, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So again, uh, yeah, let, let me keep reading. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, which is another name for the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Uh, let me pause there. Um, when you see these things, I know what, what's the big thing on Netflix right now? Jeffrey Dahmer, right? Um, and it's awful. It's disgusting and it's unwatchable, really. Um, but you see something and so grotesque. It's so evil and like, uh, you know, it's like number one on, on the watch list or something. But you, you see this stuff, and it's just repulsive. It's demonic. And then you say what? Who watches it? Well, no, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, you say what? Uh, it's very easy. I think people are fascinated by this um, because they, they wonder, like, how could that happen? Like, how could he get to that point? When the Christian says that same spirit 
was at work in me. And when I go down this path of anger and thinking and selfishness and greed and lust and all these things, that's, that, we're cut from the same cloth. That problem that he had is the problem that I have. Now, it's not to, again, going back to the analogy of the disease. Yes, the disease got to a really bad point with him, but you have the same disease. Uh, Augustine, St. Augustine has this great quote. He says, there is no sin that someone else can commit that you yourself cannot commit also. If you, if you put yourself in the same shoes, you put yourself in the same upbringing, the same impenitence and unbelief, what would you do? You would end up in the same place. He is flesh and blood, and you are flesh and blood. He is sinful, you are sinful. And left unchecked, left without the repentance and, and, and the restraining and the curbing from the Spirit of God, that is what the world would look like all the time. Everybody would be, it would be chaos. Yeah, Rob. That's the reasoning behind these states like New York and California that are not requiring bail for accused right. murderers and letting them out and they go murder somebody else and judges, they can't give the proper sentence sometimes because they know they are capable of the same thing and they feel guilty themselves. So I know. Yeah, it's it's awful. It really is. Um, nowadays, we have uh, this this fascination of why and why there is evil, as opposed to that there is evil, and just asserting that it, it is a thing. Um, so, like, you have all these villain movies now. Like, what is it? Cruella, Deville, Maleficent. Um, What's the other one? The Joker, right? What do the, those movies do? Well, they're really good at this. They try to get you to sympathize with the bad guy and understand why he's doing what he's doing. And I remember watching The Joker, and I'm like, like I felt bad for him. I had pity. And I'm like, what? No. No, that's wrong. No, he's, that's evil, right? But, but this is the thing. Like, this is very compelling. And, and so the same thing is happening in the, the reform of... Uh, what is it, prison reform and all this sort of stuff, thinking that, look, we can, if we just understand them and we just kind of, uh, uh, we can kind of reform them and change them. Yes, that's true in, in, in some ways it, early on. But if you take the life of someone, what do the scriptures say? Then your life will be taken. Uh, this is called the lex talionis, um, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. You, you knew it was wrong before then, you knew it was wrong when you were doing it, um, and now you still know it's wrong. It, it, people don't murder out of ignorance. There's anger. There's, they know what they're doing. It's against their nature, right? Um, and we could talk about that too. But, but the point there is, yeah, th- these things are unhelpful. You, you say, oh, well, let's give them a second chance. Oh, my goodness. Well, then they go out, and then they commit the same atrocity that's irreversible. That person didn't get a second chance. Right? And, and now what you've done is you've just taken away the law, at which then when, pe- when other people see this, they say, you know what, I can actually get away with murder. I can actually murder and then be out in the streets later, just in a number of years. Yeah. There's one fundamental principle that they're missing is that you're not taken to jail and you're not 
executed to punish you, you're taking, they're taking you out of society so you don't hurt the people that are innocent. Yeah. That haven't done those things. Yep. Uh, so so as, as Christians, we're, we're, we can be, well, in fact, we can, not can be, but we are for the death penalty. Um, capital punishment. Um, when it's used rightly and justly. Of course, everyone deserves due process and it sh should be proved without a shadow of a doubt, yes. Um, but Romans 13 talks about this, that God has given the authority of the sword to the government, to the emperor to wield it, um, so that they would punish those who do evil and reward those who do good. So that the, the role of the government there is that, is capital punishment. And we can, we can support that in, in good conscience as Christians. Uh, where it's throughout the scriptures. But, um, yeah, the, the point here is that, really, there, there's a deep-seated problem, and the problem is sin, and it, this can't be understood or, or reasoned with. Um, and, uh, and, and this same problem is, that we see out in the world is in us. It's just different degrees. It's the same thing. So, uh, continuing here, that same spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience used to be at work in you, among whom we all, that's all people, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That's the problem there, Hannah. Uh, the problem is that the mind is under the same influence too here in verse 3. And were by what? Nature, naturally, Children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That, that is a very dire and grave depiction of n the natural man. You take man as he is in his bare, nude form. What is he? He is a child of, of God's wrath. He is uh, the spirit uh, uh, that is at work at now, now at the sons of disobedience, uh, following the course of the world. Uh, following his passions, the prince of the air, all these things. All of those things are said of somebody who does not, who is not converted, who is, who is not Christian. And it was true also of us, too. Um, before I go on, any questions on this or the depravity of man? Yes. I think you tied, so... Yes. So uh, Luther wrote this book called The Bondage of the Will. It's really great. He's uh, debating with a guy named Erasmus. Erasmus said, um, well, the man is free. We have free will. And therefore, if, look, I, I free will. I just picked up this cup and I put it back down. Free will. See? That means, Erasmus argued, I can also have the free will with God. So God says, believe? Okay, I believe. It's just an act of my will. Or God says, uh, do this? Okay, I'll do that. And Luther's response to that is he says, uh, yes, you have free will in this realm, in the world. You have the, you have the will to pick this up and put it down. But what you don't have free will with is God. That, that is when God tells you something. And the re he didn't just, it's not a philosophy. He didn't come up with it. He just says, well, that's what the Bible says. You don't, your spirit is in bondage. So Luther writes this book called The Bondage of the Will, that the will is free in this world, but in bondage when it comes to God, that, we're, uh, that our souls picture it like this, that it's 
bound and gagged and thrown deep into a, 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 a pit. You can't say anything, can't move anything, can't, it, and it's dead. Uh, the work of salvation has to come completely from another. Right? Somebody has to go in there and free you from that. And that's the description of our salvation. Right? That God does all of the work. I couldn't even cry for help before he, he helped me. So th- that's the point. Um, Luther then also said that uh, when I die, burn all of my books except for this one, The Bondage of the Will. <laughs> um, th- this was early on before, uh, yeah, th- this was early on. But uh, he-, he says that a couple times throughout his life. He said the same thing about the catechisms later. But uh, he said, at that moment, burn all my books except for The Bondage of the Will, because he was so convinced and certain uh, that this is what the scripture says. And he's right. Uh, that is what the scriptures say about our condition. So yes, it refutes the entire um, idea of what we call decision theology. The idea that we just, since we, we're free to decide here, I'm free to decide with God. So God puts something out and then I can just decide to take it. What, but what the scriptures say is something very different, which we'll see in a second. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a really good connection there. Matthew 18. Yeah, I preached on it last year. Um, and when you do the calculation here and you look at how much the guy owes, uh, um, uh, one owes a dena- 100 denarii and the other one owes 10,000 talents. Uh, when you convert that, it's like one is like three months wage, right? And the other is 150 years of wages. Right? And he, he says, just give me time, I'll pay it off. But no, no, you can't. <laughs> That's impossible. Right? Um, and, and then he has that massive debt forgiven, and then he goes off, and then he holds a grudge against somebody else who owes him only three months of wages, who could pay him off. And, uh, and then this is, this is bad. Um, that's what it looks like. That parable is what it looks like when you say, oh, God forgives me all of my sins, but I'm not going to forgive you because you did this. Okay. Well, that, that's the comparison. You have millions of years of, uh, or m- millions of days of uh, sins that, that you uh, have offended God, and then your neighbor offends you one time, and you won't let it go. That's, that's a problem. So Jesus tells this. That's where Peter says, you know, do I forgive him seven times? He says, no. 70 times 7. Just don't, just don't count, essentially. Um, but yeah, that is our condition. That is the debt that we owe the master. Uh, we owe God so much more than we could ever pay him back. And if we think that our good works could pay him back, we're as foolish as that guy in Matthew 18 who says, oh yeah, just give me time and I'll make up for all the bad deeds in my life. You can't. You can't. You, you need the master had to have mercy upon you and wipe it all away. Um, you can't pay God back for your sins. You need him to blot them out from existence with his blood. That's what you need. Um, okay, so with that being said, I'm going to move on to the next part. Again, I don't want to leave you in despair, so I want to uh, talk about this next thing. 
which is this. Okay, so if, if it's true that we are sinful since conception, and if it's true that the sin uh, since our conception is so bad that we're enemies of God, that we're hostile to God, we find the things that he does stupid, um, and we are dead in our trespasses, then how are we saved? Right? Yes. Uh, yeah, how, how are we saved then? Um, and the answer then is found here plainly and clearly in the scriptures. Uh, the first text is Galatians 2. 15 through 16. Uh, Galatians 2, 15 through 16 says this. <clears throat> Paul writes this. He says, he um, it says, we ourselves are Jews by birth, and we're not Gentile sinners, right? What he's talking about here is he says, well, the Jews thought they, they were saved simply because of their DNA, that they came from the right bloodline, and they had Abraham as their father, naturally. And it says, so yeah, we're Jews by birth, and we're not Gentile sinners that is outside of the lineage of, uh, of um, uh, the Jews. And then verse 16 says, yet... We know, he's talking about Christians, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Right? And this goes completely against and contrary to everything that the world thinks about salvation. Uh, that the world naturally thinks, look, if, if um, I, I have the freedom, I have the ability to, to do things, if I just put in the work, then I'll get paid. Uh, and the, if that's how the whole world works, well, then that's how God must work. And if, God, uh, if I owe something to God, then just give me enough time and I can do it. And then he says here, nope, by, no, that a person is not justified by works of the law. So nothing he could do could make up for this. Uh, but he is justified through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is beautiful because this means that um, your salvation doesn't depend upon what you do. It depends upon who you believe. Um, the questions we read after church uh, in the catechism, questions one through six, uh, it says, uh, do you know that you're a sinner? Yes, I believe I'm a sinner. Uh, what do you deserve for this? Uh, temporal uh, death and eternal punishment. Is it your hope to be saved? Yes, that is my hope. And then the next question is what? Question number six says what? Not, okay, what do you do now? It doesn't say, not, now, now what are you going to change about your life? It says, in whom then do you trust? And the answer is not in myself, not in doing better, in my dear Lord Jesus Christ. That is the answer. So that, that is what faith says, that I deserve of my own, uh, on, on my own accord, of my own uh, doing, I am worthy of going to hell forever with no hope. And yet I trust 
that Jesus took all of that away from me forever. And not just that he took it away from me, but that he also gives me on top of that eternal life. And he will bring me into heaven and, and I will live there in his kingdom and be with him forever. That's it. That's beautiful. This, this is the greatest consolation. And that you, you should take these verses, inscribe them in gold in your heart, if you can. Um, remember it. Because on your deathbed, what are you going to think? You're going to be on your deathbed and, think, and the devil is going to show up and your heart is going to turn against you. And all of the things that you've failed to do, all your wrongdoings and all these problems are going to come up and you're going to remember all the bad things you've done. You're going to say, I'm about to die. I'm about to breathe my last and my mind is about to shut off and my heart will stop beating and every cell of blood in my body will stop moving and I'm going to decompose and turn to dust. In a few moments, that's going to happen. And then you're going to have all these thoughts come to your mind racing and say, Man, uh, uh, what, what, what's in store? What's after this? What's going to happen? I'm helpless. There's nobody in the world who can help me. I have nothing, uh, nothing to, to, to make up for the lost time. Uh, I, and I remember all of the bad things I did. And I can't scrub it out. And then at that moment, you set against your mind and your spirit and against all things, against the world, you hold up Christ and him crucified and you say, that is my salvation. That's what's going to save me. That's what I'm going to trust in while dying. And if you, you trust in the Lord while dying, then you have um, uh, faith. One moment of faith, even in the moment of death, is worth more than a thousand lifetimes of good works. <laughs> they say, I trust in him. And it's better than if I live this life a thousand times, trying to do better each time. But the, the Lord will save me. This, and so he says that. He says, uh, by the law, no one will be justified. But, so also we have believed in Christ in order to what? To be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Okay, the next text is Romans 3.21. Uh, 321 through 25. I'm cheating here. Um, I said it's only one verse, but this is verses. Um, so there's a number here. But you have to take this together as a whole. <laughs> yeah, yes, that's the depravity. <laughs> uh, Romans 321 says this. But now... The righteousness of God, the standard to get into heaven, that's the righteousness of God, has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So you read all the Old Testament, all the scriptures, they bear witness to the law. But God has revealed his righteousness apart from that. The righteousness of God he has revealed through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
This is so, so beautiful. Um, it, it says what we said here, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then, so how are we saved? Well, all are then justified freely by his grace, uh, by, by the righteousness of Christ. Now, let me show you the final text here. Um, and this is going back to the text we saw here. Uh, continuing the verses, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. I'll read the context there again. So, starting at verse 1 in chapter 2, and then I'll highlight verse 8 and 9 here. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Bad news. That's all bad news. That's awful. What does verse 4 say? What does it begin with? But. but. That's your hope. So if it just stopped there, imagine if the scriptures ended right there. Who could be saved? But then it continues. Verse 4, but... And then that's where your ears ought to open and your heart should leap for joy. What else are you going to say? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Here it is, verse 8 and 9. For it is because by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Um, so here we, we have this distinction between gift, uh, uh, something that is a gift and works. If you work for something, then that is your wage. Uh, you get a paycheck because of how much work you put into it. If you work, you get paid. If you don't work, you don't get paid. Simple. But a gift is something that is given without work, uh, is freely uh, given. So... By the way, in that text there, for by grace you have been saved through faith. What is the this? What's the antecedent to the this? And this is not your own doing. Yeah? Okay. Um, for, is, it, uh, is it referring to grace, or salvation, or through faith? Sorry? All of it. <laughs> so the, the, the antecedent is the whole thing there. It's saying, well, the, the great... Why, why is that the case? Because we know we couldn't do anything to begin with. So where does the grace come from? It has to come from Jesus. Where does the, um, uh, the salvation come from? It has to come from Jesus. Where did the faith come from? It had to come from Jesus. So the whole thing is a gift. The whole, uh, everything that precedes it. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, even your faith, is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. And it's not a result of works so that no one may boast. So if you were saved and made a Christian 
by your works, well, then you can be uh, arrogant. It, rightfully so. You could say, well, then I, you could boast. You could be uh, haughty and conceited and say, look, I'm so much better than all those people out there. I'm so much better than them. Why? Because I just made the decision and they haven't. I, I made the change in my life. They didn't make it. Rather, the Christian says, the, the, the Lord says, there's no boasting, which means you can't sit here and say that there's something in you that's better than them. Rather, God converted me. He changed my heart. He changed my heart from one that's hostile to God and finds what he says uh, uh, foolish to finding what he says beautiful and meaningful and clinging to every uh, word in this way. There's a question here? Or no? Oh, you didn't? Okay. And this is not your own doing. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, it's... It's both from a Lutheran perspective, but I've heard that it's only like works, not will. No, well, you have to take it in context. Well, what, what is man capable of doing when he's dead? Nothing. Nothing, right? So, so that's the context. So the description of us beforehand is, look, you're dead. So if you have a dead, if we have a casket here and a dead body... No amount of pleading or crying with the body is going to do anything. You can't say, just, just one more time, you know, say something. It's not going to happen, right? Rather, life has to be given to that. Um, so, so, that the, so that the analogy here for a conversion is not um, like you're swimming in an ocean or drowning in an ocean and, and somebody throws a life preserver and you've got to cling on, you know, grasp onto it. And they say, well, that's what faith is. You're kind of holding on to that. No, that's not in the scriptures. The analogy that the scripture uses is one of resurrection. Somebody who's dead and then is, a, is alive. So you can consider uh, Lazarus in the tomb. Lazarus dies. He's in the tomb for four days. So the Jews believed that uh, the soul hangs around for three days. Uh, and then on the four, you know, after three days then there's no hope. You're, you're losing. Uh, this, again, I'm not saying this is true. This is what the Jews believe. Um, then after the fourth day, there, or third day, there's no hope of resuscitating or reviving this person. So at the fourth day, his body is stinking. He's rotting in the tomb already. Um, Mary is weeping over uh, Lazarus. And John 11:35, you have the shortest verse in Scripture. Jesus wept. And he's crying over Lazarus. And then he says what? Uh, Lazarus, uh, do you want me to raise you? <laughs> no. He doesn't say, oh, Lazarus, uh, do you, um, just a quick question. What, what, would you, what would you prefer for me to do? He just says, Lazarus, come out. And he does. And his body just <clears throat> walks out of the tomb. This is remarkable. And that, then, is the way... Uh, is, is a picture of uh, the way the Lord has resurrected our souls. That he just speaks to our souls and says, come unto me. And they come. Right? They're, they're alive. Live. Uh, your son will live. And they, they resurrect. There's no questioning. There's no preparing the dead body in this way. He just speaks and it's done. Right? This, this is powerful. I mean, this is the same way. So this is how he creates faith. The, the same way God's word creates the world. He doesn't ask anyone if, he wa- if anyone wants there to be light, 
He doesn't question light. He just says, let there be light. And it is. And the same way he, he says to you, believe. And those words cause you to believe. Right? Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a really uh, beautiful thing here. So the point... Oh, let me give you... Sorry, we have a few more minutes. Uh, let me give you a, an honorable mention. Philippians 3. So this is the, uh, the consolation <laughs> uh, text. Um, we'll close with this text, but... Okay. This is Philippians 3, 8 through 11. I want to tell you the context here. This is Paul talking. Remember that Paul was a Jew. He was a, a Hebrew son of Benjamin. Uh, he very learned. He grew up as a Jew, a Pharisee. Um, believed his entire life that you're saved by what? By your works, by what you do. Then remember, Paul was converted. Um, but he lived his life, it was impeccable. He lived a good life. In fact, he even murdered Christians. Because he said, well, Christians are coming around here and saying that we're saved not by works, but by faith in Christ, by what he did. And I'm here to shut that down and destroy all of anyone who says such a thing. It, it was a heresy to him. He hated it. And so Paul then goes from believing that works save to then writing all of these things, saying we're saved not by works. And then listen to what he says here in Philippians. He says, um, 8 through 11. Or l- let, me, let me back up. Uh, verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And we put no confidence in the flesh. This is where I want to start. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks that they can earn their way to heaven, I have what? More, he says. So you think you're a good person? I'm better. And he's not being arrogant here. He's, he's actually he's speaking rightly. He did live a better life. So he says, uh, you think you have confidence? I have more. Why? I was circumcised on the eighth day. That's what the law required? Check, I did it. I was eight days old and I f- was already fulfilling the law. Of the people of Israel, you can't get uh, uh, better than that. Uh, I was of the tribe of Benjamin, even better. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, even better. As to the law, I was a Pharisee, the most knowledgeable, the best, uh, uh, the, the deepest study of God's word. I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. You couldn't outdo him in knowledge, in uh, uh, kindness, in loving nor in zeal. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. He kept the law. And he's not lying here. But what, this is it. But whatever gain I had, I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. For uh, um, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of what? of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Um, I just want to stop there. So what did Paul say? He's saying, I've lived this good life for all these years. Perfect, blameless, upright in every way. And I consider it loss. It was was worthless. And what has replaced that? Knowing 
Christ. That's it. Simply knowing him. And that is better than my entire life of good works. <laughs> and so he says that is, much, uh, is worth more than any good work or life that I could have ever lived. Just knowing Christ. It is the surpassing worth of knowing, just knowing him. So it's, uh, yeah, yeah, so this is the point. Paul then says, okay, yeah, I have good works, but I don't trust in them for salvation. In fact, just knowing my Lord is where my salvation is, and that's where I put my confidence. Um, so, yes, we are in a totally depraved state, naturally, but the Lord himself saves us completely. So that if we're going to be saved, he must do all the work, and he has. So that if you believe, well, then what does that mean? It's the Lord who gave you and caused you to believe. If you're a Christian, it's because the Lord made you a Christian. Um, and the Lord will keep you a Christian. He'll sustain you. Uh, and he will uh, do this in, through his word only. Okay, let me open up for questions here.